Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another serving of Business Soup Talk Radio. If it's in business, it's Business Soup. I'm your host, John Dibbavoise. It's the new Wild West. I'm talking about e-commerce. Everyone's doing it. Every business should have one. But what are the legal loopholes? Know what to do when Amazon takes action and what to do when the government takes action. There are 50 some odd different ways to collect tax. Are you on track? Well, we called upon our friend Paul Raffleson from ecomattorneys.com. Paul is going to be sharing all the tips, tools, and techniques on how to do business in e-commerce from the lawyer's perspective, right here at the table on Business Soup. Paul, welcome to this serving of Business Soup. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to be on. Well, and I'm excited to have you on because the world of the internet has evolved. And when I first got on radio many years ago, I was saying, everybody's running at the internet. We don't know why, but we're running at it. Nobody at that time had figured out how to monetize it. Well, let's talk about today. The world is based in an e-com society and it has leveled the playing field. But yet there are caveats. There are problems that exist in the e-commerce site. What are some of the problems that your law firm deals with on the e-commerce, ecomattorneys.com? What are some of the problems that e-commerce sites are faced with right now and how you cover their assets? Well, I like the way you, you categorize as, as sort of the ultimate leveler of the playing field, because you're absolutely right. And I've, I've said that to uh, a lot of folks. I have said that to members of Congress. I've said that to the antitrust committee. I've said that to uh, investigating Amazon. I've said that to state government people. It is absolutely the most powerful thing we have in America right now and in the world, really, to give everyone equal opportunity in a way that just was unimaginable. 20 years ago, right? It was just unimaginable that you could that, that we could be able to do this. E-commerce, as I sort of characterized it a couple of years ago in an amicus brief I wrote involving a sales tax case called Wayfair, I said it's it's a portal to the national economy that everyone can access, right? Because 20 years ago, 30 years ago, if you wanted to sell goods to the entire nation, right, across the world, right? I mean, you would need, you know, millions and millions of dollars of capital investment, you would have to sell distribution. Now it's like it's so easy. It's so easy to get into the game get into the hustle. And that's a game changer. It's just created so many opportunities for people to find their own path to success, whatever that is and however they define it. You know, whether that's the freedom to travel and earn a decent living, whether it's, you know, to just completely crush it, as they say. It's really remarkable the opportunities that e-commerce has brought about, which is why it's also scary because we've got some real serious issues that we see as lawyers and we're trying to address. And I address it sort of in two ways, through my law practice and helping individual e-commerce companies and also through a nonprofit 501c6 organization called Online Merchants Guild, which is a pet project that I help create. And I volunteer my time to run it, to do the advocacy, to get to raise awareness of exactly what we're just talking about right now, because it's so important. E-commerce, there's two aspects to it that I've been watching. It's those who are selling you the opportunity to create an e-commerce and those people who have the e-commerce. I'm not sure if this is like the gold rush days where who gets rich, the one who's selling the picks and shovels or the one who's mining the gold. It's huge industries on both sides from the left and the right hand side. So there's a leveling out there, and it takes time to build up these e-commerce sites and particularly get your product out there. But if I come through your door and I 
And I say, Paul, I've got trouble with my e-commerce site. What are some of the troubles that I am likely to have right now in this e-commerce society? Part of the magic of e-commerce, like I said, is that instant access to the national economy. Well, that instant, you know, that magic comes with some peril too, because you think about what practicing law for a small business looked like 20 years ago. You know, you're helping somebody open up a store in the middle of town and, you know, maybe you get a few out-of-staters in now and then, you know, depending on where the store is. It's a very different world now where you're opening up a store that's open to all around the world, where you could have customers in any state. So now you're not just subject to your state and local laws in your hometown, you're you're subject potentially to state and local laws of the entire nation. So you've got 50 states to contend with. And that's part of the biggest issue is the interstate commerce issue, the one that I've been addressing tremendously on an advocacy front, because that's really burdening the process. And, and that's unfortunately a product of the fact that Congress doesn't get it. They don't see it. You have a member of Congress asking Mark Zuckerberg, how can you make money on Facebook if you don't charge? It kind of shows like Congress hasn't really <laughs> fully woken up to the idea that this is the great equalizer. Everybody gets the same opportunity. I don't have to go to a pitch room in Arkansas and beg a, one of the largest companies in the world to please put my product on your shelf so people can see it. I can put it on my own shelf and make it right. and help get people to see it. And I don't have to rely on the, the judgment of, of an individual buyer who may or may not like me for whatever reason. Maybe I'm not an Arkansas Razorbacks fan to say you know whether that can happen. So it's an amazing and powerful tool. The people in charge, both at the federal and state level, are really not aware or fully understand or grasp the concept. And so this creates massive overregulation because what we really are seeing is that states are trying to regulate all 50 states at once are trying to regulate our businesses, our small businesses. And they're treating us like Google. I used to be a corporate attorney for large companies, Microsoft, Walmart, GE, okay? They're treating, and this is what motivated me to get out of that space and into this space, because all of a sudden I realized like suddenly a small business owner needs the same kind of legal assistance that a GE would need or a Google or a Microsoft. Like it's absolutely insane to me that that's the world we're in. So our clients get into trouble. It comes from all sides. A classic example, Prop 65. Are you familiar with Prop 65? Describe from the legal standpoint what Prop 65 means to small business. Prop 65 is a California law. It's a California rule. It says that you have to basically, if there are certain chemicals that are involved in the manufacturing of your product, you have to basically disclose that through, you know, either a sticker on the product or on the website. There's a whole host of rules. Now, there's an exemption under Prop 65 for businesses with less than 10 employees, which is great. But if you're part of your e-commerce strategy is to utilize a, like an Amazon or an eBay, you could find that those companies could be liable and you're indemnifying them. So it's like you're basically getting sucked in to that process. Or if you have 11 employees, you're still a small business, right? Now, all of a sudden, you got to know that there's a Prop 65, which you may not know if you're in Georgia or Alabama. You may never heard of Prop 65. People in California know, if anyone here is listening to California, you already know what I'm talking about. Look at your glove box. You probably had a sticker on it that said, danger, this product is known to contains toxic chemicals. It's known to cause. So you see it every day. But how does a person in Alabama know? And what lawyer in Alabama is going to know to know about Prop 65? And is that even the right answer to know about it? Or is the problem this overregulation? So we see in so many ways, e-commerce sellers getting caught up in claims of deceptive practices under a state they've never even been to, you know, or nowhere near. So that's an issue that this sort of subject to multi-regulation across the 50 states, whether that's constitutional or not, remains to be seen. For example, in price gouging, we actually won a case in court in Kentucky at the federal court. We did not charge 
our clients to bring that case. This was an online merchants guild case we brought as a trade association and said that, you know what, the Amazon, the application of the price safe gouging laws to Amazon merchants is, is unconstitutional because they can't set the price on a state by state basis. So how can I be guilty of a price gouging law if I can't even set a price on a single state? Because what may be a valid price in one state may not be a valid price in another. Only Amazon can control those aspects of the transaction. So you need to work with lawyers that understand interstate commerce. Now, my background, it happens to be state and local tax litigation, which is heavily rooted in, in the Commerce Clause. And it just so happened that sort of the cards just aligned. And I was an Amazon seller when I was in law school, and I, I've been in e-commerce for a long time, that it just all this, the cards aligned and just kind of pushed me in this direction that I wanted to help e-commerce businesses. But because the, the legislators, as you just gave a perfect example of when Zuckerberg, probably why he has such a, a frequent blank stare on his face is that he can't believe okay. that he's getting these questions asked to him. How do you make money if you don't charge for a membership? And, and that's coming from the people that represent us, our legislators. Yes. And we put them there. We did. That's part of what, this is why I created Online Merchants Bill and trying to get people to rally together. I don't get paid anything from OMG. Like where I do this because I love this. This is cutting edge law. This is cutting edge legal. This cutting edge advocacy. It needs to happen. And I love the fact that I have the opportunity to sort of lead a charge on it. It just personally excites me. So I'm happy to do that and volunteer my time to do that. But it's so important like that we get together to sell as, as e-commerce merchants. And in this technology, government has to play a perpetual game of catch-up. Yes. And it takes so long to get anything going through them. And then you have to break it down into the simplest language for them to understand. And then it gets regurgitated in something that doesn't even look like what you came to them with. So I've seen this happen in other areas of business. And it's frustrating. You know, everybody thinks sales tax is figured out. It's it's a mess. I mean, if you talk to people who have their e-commerce business that is focused on their own website versus Amazon or eBay or Wayfair, or Etsy, right, where it's your e-commerce store, whereas when you sell on Amazon, it's really their store. You're just sort of a consigning supplier or your supplier to their store. You know, it's their customer, et cetera, et cetera. That's a big problem because right now the rates are operating. It's, use Amazon FBA. You don't get any protection from having to have $100,000 in sales or whatever in each state, you're instantly required to collect. And I actually filed a lawsuit in California, another online merchants case on Tuesday to challenge that because it's it's crazy. It's like you, you can't even start your own website these days. And the cost of complying with 50 states under this current environment is insane. It's a six-figure problem. One of the biggest issues in e-commerce today is still sales tax. It's the number one reason people don't want to have their own website. And it creates a reliance on Amazon because right now the way the laws work is if you sell on Amazon, Amazon will do all the sales tax. You don't have to register. You're not supposed, you really shouldn't have to register. And you certainly aren't responsible for collecting, which can be a very expensive problem. Having to collect sales tax in 45 states, 12,000 local jurisdictions. And then file them. If you're collecting it, then you are responsible for paying it, and which comes with a form. Right. And a 45-state registered company is going to be perpetually under audit by probably two states a month and subject to all sorts of crazy tax bills. It's insanity. I mean, I used to work for large companies, and it's, it's insanity that a small business would have to deal with that. So, you know, we've seen small businesses, five, six million dollar Shopify sellers say we can't afford 50 state collections. So we went to Congress in March. We set up some testimony before the small business subcommittee. And all we want Congress to do is come up with a streamlined solution for small businesses where why do I need to register in 50 states? There's something called the International Fuel Tax Agreement, where if you drive your truck across the country and you have to pay use tax on your fuel as you drive across, you only have to report to one jurisdiction. You don't have to report to all 50 
states. You don't have to register in all 50 right. states. The, the states are taking it upon themselves to redistribute. So we sort of say, you know, there should be a central clearinghouse for small businesses. Take a report from Shopify or Big Commerce, upload it, pay whatever amount the computer calculates provided by the state, and that's it. It should be flawless, error-free, simple, and then let the states divide it among themselves based on the data that they get. And there needs to be that streamlined solution. And if you actually read the Supreme Court's decision, they actually require it. But until that happens, people are going to be driven towards the Amazons. They're going to be driven towards paying 45% commission on every sale, not having a, their own customers they can market to. You're missing out on so much when you sell on Amazon because you don't get that market. You don't That's get right. to retarget and follow-up emails, all that stuff that drives more sales. You lose out that when you sell on Amazon. Well, um, and Amazon that? loves that reliance. And of course, and he created what started off as a bookstore and it is turning into a world force. That is the elephant and the gorilla in the room at the same time. And we're all being pushed to do business with and through Amazon. And you pointed out something that was shared with my audience on multiple occasions. And that is when you make a sale through Amazon, you don't get the customer information. It's their information. You get the fulfillment order. What are some of the things that I must know about if I'm going to put product on Amazon to sell it? You made a frightening statement about a 45% commission. That's a pretty tough nut to cover. How do I cover myself? How do I cover my assets in dealing with Amazon? I have a partner in my firm who's a lawyer, and he's also a seven-figure Amazon seller. I used to sell on Amazon you know, 20 years ago, but I haven't sold in a long time. But he still runs his business just to make sure he's up to date, keeps him in the game. you know. So he's, he's ready to help our clients who so many of them are Amazon sellers. It's a love-hate relationship because you see your sales grow, but your profits not so much, right? I mean, I can tell you a million-dollar seller on Amazon may eke out, you know, 65, 70 grand a year in profit at the end of the day. That's including their salary if they're paying themselves anything. That's a lot of sales, a lot to for it. It's, it's just, it's, you know, for the amount of effort and time they put in. So what do you need to know? There's two ways to go about Amazon, right? There's the sort of the fulfillment by Amazon where you ship your stuff to them and they put it in their warehouses and then they right. fill the order out of their warehouses. That's where their commissions are 45%. You can do seller fulfilled. It used to be you could do seller fulfilled prime, but this is very hard and to do. And um, uh, you have to meet their timelines, which are impossible sometimes, uh, unless you're very big and you have a big distribution network on your own. So if you don't do fulfillment by Amazon, then the commission, is, it's, I think it's like 15%. So it's obviously more reasonable. But if you're not using fulfillment by Amazon, you're not going to be prime. And not being prime is going to slow down your product sales, right? Being prime is, you know, is so essential. In fact, the antitrust committee, if you read the report they just put out today, which were online merchants go quoted in many times, they talk about that. that they really tied prime to seller success. Bundling the fulfillment with their store is really key. So that's the first thing you have to know. The other thing you have to know is your sales data is public. Like your sales data is out there. One of the things I always tell people, if you have, if you have a product that you're like really concerned about like people knocking you off, one of the things you can do to make sure that they will is put it on Amazon. And if it's successful, expect to see knockoffs. Yeah. Expect to see lots of knockoffs because they're going to see all the data about how fast your product is selling, how fast it's moving. Okay. Whereas where if you're on your own website, that data isn't publicized anywhere. So it's going to be much harder to tell. You know, I guess you could look at customs records, but that's... that's but, but then you're losing out on likely the volume that you would have through Amazon. You are. And so you, 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 get, you get the privacy, 
but you're selling in a vacuum. Exactly. So I always say be warned, but you know, so that's why protecting your intellectual property is important. So if there's trademarks, if there's patents, if there's design patents, you know, necessarily patent isn't necessarily an invention. Maybe you can do some design patents, sure, which are patenting the look of your product versus the functionality is saying that I have this unique functionality. Trademarks, copyrights are the most underused form of intellectual property. People miss out on copyright all the time. It's the easiest type of IP to acquire. It's the fastest and it's the most effective because we have something called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which actually gives you a lot of rights if somebody really copies your product, really copy, I mean, literally infringes on your product. Not they copied on it in a way where it's like, it's clearly their own version. I'm talking about like, actually copying because that we see that more often it's it's probably your factory that in china that might be copying your product and selling and competing against you that was sort of the joke back in the day but the data is out there so i mean you've got programs like helium 10 jungle scout that can see you know based on the data that's coming from amazon how well you're doing so you know just realize that that you know your 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 data is going to be out there so if that privacy is important you want something more organic you know you don't necessarily want everybody piling in you want to you know it's going to be a slower growth progression as you mentioned but you will have a little bit more privacy because it's not going to be broadcast to the world that you're doing really well, inviting competition. And competition is a good thing because it shows you that there's a market. And and if you can tap into that, into the competitive marketplace and sell your product, you're capitalizing on their market penetration to give you exposure in your own product and service. I agree. I just think the competition you experience on Amazon a lot of times is from Half of Amazon's millions, you know, there's about 800,000 sellers in the United States. There's 2 million in China. And one of the things sellers in China is they don't really have to play by the rules. Yeah. They don't have to worry about whether or not the product is compliant with, you know, UL labs or, uh, you know, what chemicals or whether or not it uses lead paint. None of that matters when you're a China-based seller because what's going to happen? If you buy something from a seller in China and it burns down your house, you're not going to go sue that person in China. There's no recourse. That's right. For you. So... And the law is changing on that. So what we're seeing now is more courts are now starting to hold Amazon accountable for injury. And then Amazon comes to the seller for indemnification. But uh, again, if the seller's in China, good luck, Amazon. I mean, they're not, even they're not going to have a chance, but they are, they're doing this more with U.S. sellers too. So insurance is key too. Well, in, in the case of China, you know, Milton Friedman, the Nobel laureate in economics, was at the forefront of a free market society. But with China, it's a free-to-take market society, and that's what they do. And they there, there's no recourse to speak of because who's going to go to China and sue them? Yeah, I mean, there's some things we've been able to to do um, working with some of our partners and like you know trying to seize funds that are here in the United States. Like if they've ripped off your product, and I mean literally ripped it off, like you know violated your patents, trademarks copyrights. There may be ways to sort of seize PayPal funds or funds that are sort of sitting at Amazon before they get dispersed to the recipient. So there are some things, but those aren't easy and those aren't fun. You know, those are complicated cases. And I can tell you, it's heartbreaking. I have some really great clients who just deal with this all the time. And it's not just Amazon, it's Facebook too. They have the counterfeit ads. It's just a constant battle of whack-a-mole to try to, you know, knock these people out. And it's heartbreaking that this is the way it is. But the Amazon data tells the story that, hey, this is something worth worth counterfeiting and, and selling. And, and Amazon does not do a good enough job to police that. Paul, I want to return my attention over to the recent antitrust report that came out that you were working on. And, and that was against Amazon. What was that all about? And what's in that report that a small business would want to know about in the world of e-commerce? Well, yeah, I'm glad you asked. I was really, yeah, the report came from uh, the Congressional 
the House Antitrust Committee yesterday, and it's it, it focused on you know the four big tech companies: Google, Facebook, Apple, and uh, Amazon. Not in any particular order. Not in any particular order. Amazon did not come in as the also ran in the horse industry. Yeah, no, no, they were just. And they're looking at very, it was a sort of a strange look because they're looking at sort of just the overall market power of big tech and sort of Amazon. One minute they're talking to Jeff Bezos, just sort of give you a little background about his mistreatment of Amazon sellers. And the next minute they're talking about Mark Zuckerberg's policy towards censoring ads, you know, so it's, it's like a totally broad investigation. And there's about, I don't know, 80 pages or so carved out. If you want to see, and, and I don't know if the report is on the committee's website, but it's very easy to find. If you just Google it, it just came out yesterday. It's usually most of the news articles have a link to it. And it starts on page 349 for those of you who actually do. But it's really fascinating. If you really want to know what it's like to sell on Amazon, if you really want to know what the risks are, what the fears are, what the concerns are, just read that report because they do an amazing job. They took testimony statements from sellers, from consultants, and from our organization, Online Merchant Skills, which again is that our sort of pending nonprofit C6 trade association where I try to advocate for the e-commerce community. And yeah, we were quoted in it quite a bit. We submitted testimony to the committee twice, written testimony uh, once early on in the process last year, about a year ago. And then once again, as Jeff Bezos testified, once he was, we submitted uh, written response testimony for that hearing. So, which you can actually read on the website that is posted on the website. So this committee really took their time to understand the Amazon market power that they have over their sellers. And that's, it's a little scary. It's a little scary when you sell on Amazon. I mean, it's, it's a very powerful thing, Amazon, you know, because you, you do see your sales go up fast when you get your products on Amazon, but you know, with it comes a lot of frustration and some instability. And that's not to say you shouldn't do it because obviously plenty of our clients are very successful on Amazon and have done really well and have sold their businesses that, that, that are primarily dependent on Amazon for revenue. So, I mean, th- there's certainly opportunity. I don't mean to give people the impression that, you know, you shouldn't sell on Amazon, but just know the risk. It's a resource predicated on your profit margins. It can be yes. very advantageous and very profitable, as as you've described with people that have made well into the multiple seven figures on selling oh, through Amazon. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So volume is just as important as profit. But if you're selling it for two cents profit, you better have a lot of volume. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's a very frustrating process to sell on Amazon because, you know, it's it's great. And, then, you know, you, you run into these roadblocks. And again, that's that's one of the, the you know, I would say a, a substantial amount of our law practice is dealing with Amazon directly, which isn't my area of expertise. That's my partner, Jeff Sheck, who handles that. He's dealing with the frustration of, of being an Amazon seller. So when Amazon shuts down your account or shuts down your listing or holds your money for no reason, or seemingly no reason for, for God knows when, or in some cases, they'll destroy your inventory uh, without warning. I mean, it, it it, it, it is scary. So you just kind of have to be prepared for that. If you have a heart condition, Amazon may not be for you. That's <laughs> all I'm saying. You know, you got to be prepared. Again, what our firm does, you know, we're, we're very, you know, we offer account health checks. We do things that we try to do proactive stuff to help you. And, you know, when we talk to our clients, give them some Amazon strategy because it's really important. A lot of times Amazon, like any other state government, will change the rules or move the goalpost while you are in business with them. And I've heard of horror stories where you have shipped your product to Amazon for fulfillment and then they send it back to you at your cost because they've changed the labeling process. Absolutely. Yeah, no, the, the stories like that are a dime a dozen. Moving the goalposts is an expression I hear from so many of our clients. In fact, so a lot of the phrases our clients use are so 
are, are the same. And it's like, I mean, they, they all know each other. It's because it's, it's just, it just invokes that same emotional reaction in everybody's mind when they experience this. And absolutely, Amazon does move the goalpost. And they do have, I think we were quoted in this report for this point. One of the points we were quoted for in this report was the idea that they have their sort of internal judicial system, which is why you kind of need an Amazon lawyer, because it is a legal process to deal with Amazon a lot of times. Given the subject matter of the typical suspension, a lot of times has to do with intellectual property or malicious acts of a competing seller, oftentimes in China. And you kind of have to know to navigate the process and, and the legal issues around it. Price gouging was another one. They do constantly move the goalpost in, in every way and they raise, raise their rates. It feels like it gets harder and harder every year, whereas early on it was very easy. And the funny thing about the judicialism is they even have their own Supreme Court. And this is where we were quoted. It was one of the things we were quoted on. We were sort of saying it's a, sort of your writ of certiorari to the Supreme Court of Amazon is to email your case to Jeff at Amazon.com, the Jeff Bezos email or the Jeff bomb, <laughs> right? That's your last effort. And it's, it, it works. I mean, you just, but you don't want to waste it. Like common mistake, people will do that before exhausting other remedies. You don't go to the Supreme Court when you have a legal issue. That's the, that's the last place you go. And it's sort of the same way in Amazon's what I call kangaroo legal system. You don't want to go to Jeff at Amazon.com first. You want to you want to make sure you work the appropriate channels, have a case put together, crafted properly, succinctly, and then you send it. And that's what we do. You know, we're very good at drafting and and you know, a lot of times we'll get people will send us their attempts to do it themselves. And it'll be like eight pages. I'm like, these people who are reviewing your account have less than 30 seconds to make a call. Sending them eight pages isn't gonna help. Yeah. You got to know exactly what to say, how to say, and you got to be careful too. Because if there's issues of, you know, maybe you did something that was wrong, maybe not knowingly, you got to make sure you address those without admitting anything that could potentially create legal issues for you in the future. Price gouging. This was a big deal during price gouging. You know, people were like, okay, I price gouged. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have priced it. Like, well, first of all, you didn't price gouge. Second of all, you didn't need to admit you price gouged and make a legal admission in order to get your account reinstated on Amazon. There was a certain process you had to follow. And so that's why it's important to get help. And that's one of the things we do as a firm quite a lot is we deal with the Amazon side of things. Well, and one of the areas that got my attention with your firm is that you can be doing business with Amazon and then suddenly you're disrupted because you've been suspended. And it's not like mm -hmm. going to the principal's office. What are some of the reasons why my account on Amazon would be suspended? So the most common reasons are usually some form of IP infringement, intellectual property infringement claim by another party. So somebody says you're violating intellectual property. Amazon's going to shoot first and you know, ask questions later because the way the law sort of works is that once Amazon has notice of intellectual property violation, they can no longer play dumb. They can no longer play, oh, we didn't know. You know, we, we can't possibly, because that's their legal defense. They're like we're, we're a platform. We can't police everything. But once they're given notice, they have to take action. And they've gotten a little bit better at not completely shutting everyone down at first notice because they there's there's a other issues. But, but intellectual property is a big one. Um, the other issues are authenticity, right? If you're selling products that are, you're not making yourself and not your products, you're sourcing products from somewhere else, you better make sure you can prove their authenticity. So, okay. um, and that comes in, in many ways. Like if you bought it at TJ Maxx, that's fine. You just submit some, that's a very easy thing to fix. You submit your TJ Maxx receipts. If you buy Louis Vuitton bags or let's say Michael Kors bags from somebody who tells you they're authorized to sell you Michael Kors and they're really selling you counterfeits, you can have a big issue on your hands. And that, that happens a lot. We've seen a lot of these fake diverters, people claiming that they're they're the official sellers of the bags, but they're trying to make their quota. So they'll they'll sell it to you. Normally wholesale would be a hundred and we're gonna sell it to you for five yeah. bag, you know, and here buy a thousand and then you ship them and then all of a sudden you've just sold like through Amazon like, you know, hundreds of counterfeit bags. And then eventually 
you know, the brand finds out, they do a test buy and, and that, that can spell trouble. So always know your sourcing. Like that's, that's the most important thing. Don't source a goodwill shop. If you're one of those people who likes to resell, do not source at a goodwill shop, especially if it's like something that's likely to be counterfeited. Like, you know, if you buy a Louis Vuitton bag at a goodwill shop, don't sell it on Amazon. Don't sell it on eBay. Like you can get in trouble. Like it, it's, it just can be, a, it can be a disaster. So, you know, it's because that a receipt from a goodwill shop doesn't prove authenticity, you know, whereas Amazon will accept TJ Maxx, Walmart, Marshall, you know, that that's typical. Other areas of suspension can be product safety concerns. Uh, sometimes you have to uh, provide testing. Uh, that your product complies with certain testing, uh, labeling issues if your product uh, isn't labeled properly, and you know with respect to the category, ingredients. I mean, it, the list goes on. Anything you can possibly imagine, Amazon can can really shut you down. You know, compliance with a particular law, claims. You know, if you sell a supplement, don't claim it cures a disease. You know, don't say, oh, yes. don't say that your you know whatever oil is going to cure COVID because you'll get shot down right away. So it really spans the gamut, of like what you can get suspended for. It's it's anything and everything. There's always something new. Price gouging was big in March, right? You know, Amazon was the number one price gouger in the country. Actually, not the individual merchants who we proved through court can't actually price gouge under state law according to the Constitution. But Amazon itself was clearly price gouging. Do you know how many states investigated Amazon? Zero. Do you know how many of our clients got investigated? A lot. Wow. Right? A lot of our clients were getting subpoenas or investigative demands from like, I think we had like 15 states. We were we had local counsel involved in, in like 15 states uh, dealing with subpoenas. And it just, it was so hypocritical. It was like none of these state governments were doing anything. They were all partnering with Amazon because Amazon puts jobs and warehouses in all these states. So the states are nice to them. And that's, again, part of the advocacy side of this is that we need to sort of change the message. We need your state officials should not just be just kowtowing to Amazon and, and letting Amazon do what they want. And they should care about the small businesses behind Amazon. Though That's their constituents. That's their voters, right? So we should not be letting our AGs get away with this. Like our AGs are basically using the small Amazon sellers as basically um, publicity fodder so they can show how tough they are in price gouging. Yet the number one price gouger in the country, according to Public Citizen, no investigation by your AG because they don't want to jeopardize their cozy little relationship. So we as voters need to remind our politicians that we elect them. Amazon doesn't vote in Kentucky. We do. Okay. We vote and we should send a message because it's, it's really scary out there just how much power Amazon has over our government, state level, especially. And we as, as the small business e-commerce companies need to remind that we're the small business. This is who they should be supporting. This is who they should be protecting. Absolutely. You said at the beginning, e-commerce is a great equalizer. This is good for everybody. If you want to know more, my audience of small business owners, you want to know more about how you can cover your assets and stay out of the Amazon suspensions. Well, you can go to this interview and the resources there at BizSoup, B-I-Z-S-O-U-P, where all business goes for business, where you can get all the information and the links to what we're talking about here with Paul Rappelson and his business, Ecom Attorneys. Paul, I know you're going to come back and talk about the other aspect that you're working with. With helping businesses with the legal services that every business needs. And that'll be coming up in a forthcoming Biz Soup serving. Paul from ecomattorneys.com. Thanks for joining us on this serving of Business Soup. Thank you so much. This has been another serving of Business Soup, where business comes for business. I'm John Debevoise, inviting you to visit the website for more servings of what is best in business. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. 
To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.